Hey, Gisa. Uh, thanks for joining me. And I guess um, I'll probably put a little intro on this uh, before I publish. But it's, uh, it's good to have you today. I think um, the reason that I wanted to speak with you is uh, just kind of my fascination and uh, and uh, interest in a lot of the work that you're doing. So I, I think maybe where we could start the discussion off today, give uh, us just a, a little bit of an overview of like how you got to and in terms of the, the legal work that you do in rights in Iran. And uh, maybe you can give us an idea of how you made your way to the Atlantic Council. I'm sure there was a progression that took place. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm a I'm a human rights lawyer, um, but I started out working on international criminal legal matters. So what that means is I was at the international criminal courts in The Hague. I think probably a lot of people have heard of The Hague. They might think it's a institution or something like that. It's actually a city in the okay. Netherlands where a lot of international courts are located. And uh, I worked at the Yugoslav Tribunal and the International Criminal Court and did some small matters with other tribunals around the world. But um, that's how I started out. And I think the reason that I mentioned that is because the way that I started and then what I started working on after that has really led me to the current point. So I started at these courts where all the matters I was on um, it was super clear that the matter should be before that court. It, th this question of jurisdiction, you know, whether or not a court can look into the crimes that's brought before it. All these international courts had jurisdiction to look into the files that they were looking at. Um, after that, though, I got uh, I'm Iranian American, so I can speak the language and I can interview victims and survivors in Persian from Iran, those who've been subjected to human rights violations. Um, the, the human rights situation in Iran is really an acute one. It's a it's a crisis and it's a long running slow burn of a crisis. Um, but I got into that work at some point. So after having worked on the former Yugoslavia, Kenya, different countries, I then started focusing on Iran. Mm -hmm. And unlike what I was working on before, there was no clear path to hold human rights violators accountable. Okay. The reason for that is that the domestic courts in Iran are not willing, they're unwilling or unable to take these cases on because the state is usually the alleged perpetrator. And you can imagine how awkward that would be. So they don't tend to bring those cases. Um, and then Iran is not a member of the International Criminal Court. Okay. So barring any creative jurisdictional paths, there's not a clear way for matters that you know, crimes that happen in the territory of Iran to be brought before that court. And there's no other international tribunal that deals with that. Mm. So really what we're looking at are national courts that have the ability to prosecute things that have happened elsewhere. Okay. And I can dig into what that means, but it's a, it's a, it's a newer kind of area. It has had a bit of a revival, something called universal jurisdiction, which may be familiar to some some of your listeners, but it's had a bit of a revival in recent years. But the point is, like, there's not a clear path to justice. And so 
going from a scenario, going from a situation in which we knew we're properly before court to having to become really scrappy and creative and think through how we can achieve justice on a file um, has been a major shift. And, um, you know, it's not only, I don't only work on Iran. I mean, Iran obviously is a personal interest for me and there is a really acute human rights crisis there and an impunity gap, but this applies to other countries as well that similarly uh, face these challenges. Syria is quite notable for this. The matters are not able to be brought before the International Criminal Court for different reasons. The domestic courts obviously aren't going to deal with it. Um, but there's a lot of countries that are similarly situated. And we have to be creative about how we seek out legal solutions. Interesting. And not that we can um, dig into in that arena. But you're saying that your career has kind of taken you to different parts of the world. Um, but, but you were born... And uh, yeah. your, your family is from Iran? Mm-hmm. Yeah, families from Iran still have a lot of family in Iran. Um, mm-hmm. I myself am here. And unlike most people who are around, like, you know, most of my Iranian friends actually were mostly born in Iran. I'm just by some quirk was born here, um, which maybe makes it easier to get through airports. I don't know, but um, <laughs> not, not much of a difference. I mean, I was born in San Jose. I still struggle to get through airports. Um, <laughs> I hear you on that. Um, there, uh, to kind of zoom out a little bit, when we think about uh, human rights violations, I, I'm sure that, like a scope of like things that you come across, may, maybe regularly or, or occasionally. But like, if we were breaking this down for laymen, what what constitutes a human rights violation, or what? of violations that a government might commit that hit your radar? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, There's a lot of, you know, there's a spectrum of what violations constitute. There are things like violations of the freedom of expression, assembly, association. Those are considered to be more civil and political rights. Um, Then there are economic and cultural rights, which are a bit different, you know, something like right to health, for instance, a a little bit different. And then we have the more like the grave crimes, which is what I look at a bit more. So war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, um, torture, you know, things that and so uh, torture, murder, rape, the things that constitute um, crimes underlying offenses for crimes against humanity as well. Um, So, you know, that's the way I view it. I mean, some things might be, for example, states shutting down all the free press. Mm. Well, that's not great. But then what if they're actually jailing, torturing and killing journalists? Mm. You know, there's a whole spectrum of what that means. Some, no states around the world have clean human rights records. None. Um, Not that I know of anyway, unless it's like a population of, you know, a thousand or something. Maybe they a a small island can can get away with that. Um, But most states do have um, violations on their record. I think the question for me is always the severity, the ability to redress that within a society. You know, if there's a strong independent judiciary, they can look at crimes, even ones that are committed by states and provide redress for victims and 
assurances of non-repetition and things like that. But if it's in a state that's not a democracy, is a dictatorship, doesn't have a free press, doesn't have independent courts, doesn't have a vibrant civil society, the prospects for that are much less. So the way I view it is that there's a whole spectrum of like from least severe to most severe human rights violations and atrocity crimes. And um, Iran is not doing so well on that list. And the countries that I focus on are doing well, they're doing terribly, right? So the countries on the list that I look at are doing terribly. Um, and they don't have ways to remedy that domestically. So that's usually this type of situation I look at versus somewhere like the US, let's say, which also commits lots of um, human rights violations. A lot of those are dealt with in domestic courts. Um, some of those things that happen abroad are not dealt with, and that's a big problem, right? But there's different, I, I would say there's different, um, there's different ways to approach these issues. And then the last thing I'll note on that is, um, is that with uh, these, these, these situations where like more severe things are happening, um, a lot of times we find ourselves really trying to think through like what are prevention mechanisms as well. A lot of times I come in at the justice phase, which is sort of the accountability phase, but it's always retrospective, right? It's looking at what's happened. And I think a lot of um, efforts should really be focused on atrocity prevention, which is very much part of what I work on as well. But, um, you know, I think as a, as a planet, we're not doing so well on the prevention point at the moment. I could see that. You said Iran is one place that you're focused on, but are there other regions or parts of the world that you look at human rights violations? Yeah, so the the project that we have going at the Atlantic Council, um, I wanted it to be at a think tank. So I had this idea because a lot of the litigation matters that I was working on, you know, human rights litigation matters over the past decade plus, I realized that it's, you know, our efforts are quite limited by the legal framework. And so we have to change some of the laws in national jurisdictions and also internationally, as well as the mechanisms that enforce it to really be able to seek redress for victims and survivors. Um, so part of why I want to be at a think tank, because normally this kind of litigation work would be better suited I'd say to an NGO environment, which is really the environment that I come from, or if you're properly at a court, a tribunal or a domestic prosecutor's office. Um, but the reason I thought policy was important is because that's how we're gonna get the laws changed. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work of the project focuses on looking at what the laws are on the books in the US, Canada, European countries and elsewhere. Um, and by the laws, I mean the laws that have some sort of extraterritorial application where they could hold human rights violators that, you know, commit acts in other countries accountable in their national jurisdictions. Um, so that's a big part of the work. And while, of course, I focus on Iran and um, we also have a Syria accountability project, um, I have a lawyer who joined our program who's super she's amazing and she's a Uyghur human rights lawyer. So she's looking at the situa situation of the Uyghurs in China, mm -hmm. which sits 
quite differently to Iran or Syria and that China, you know, China has incredible global reach and economic power. So the way we deal with that is different. Mm -hmm. Then we also look at Latin America, um, you know, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and um, there are some matters that we're dealing with with respect to Belarus, okay. um, Ukraine, and so on. So that's, that's the global reach. Um, but I myself focus a lot on the Iran file because Frankly, not a lot of groups are really looking at the legal side of things. A lot of international justice groups, um, you know, there's limited resources and time and Iran is very politically complicated. And um, I think that can be challenging. It's also not a complex situation, which I mean, which is a good thing, but that does um, position it a bit differently to some of the other situations that folks are looking at. Okay. And you say, so they don't participate um, in anything that we use the International Criminal Court. So then you also said the domestic courts aren't necessarily an effective way of holding the state accountable, but you, you mentioned uh, like a national court system or like some new structure. Yeah. So the, the domestic courts in Iran are not a reliable forum to seek justice. And that's because the courts are not independent. They're largely controlled by the intelligence ministry. There's a lot of improper um, fiddling with who counsel can be and fair trial rights are not observed, um, especially in politically sensitive files. So the domestic courts in Iran are not any kind of reliable um, forum for that. What I mean by national courts is the national courts of other states, so states outside of Iran, can actually deliver justice. Um, we have our first ever universal jurisdiction trial against an, a, you know, a former Iranian um, official in Sweden. That okay. started in August, and it'll conclude in April, and it's for war crimes, murder. Um, he was involved in the killing of thousands of political prisoners in mm -hmm. Iran's jails in 1988. Mm -hmm. So it's a historical crime, but he's being held to account for it. And um, this principle of universal jurisdiction, just to explain that, so it's, you Please. know, typically courts have jurisdiction over matters when a crime is completed in their territory. So let's say, you know, like, let's just talk about the U.S. Somebody is murdered in Kansas. Mm -hmm. Tragic. Um, the local court would deal with that because presumably, you know, the act happened in Kansas. Maybe the perpetrator was from Kansas. Maybe the victim was from Kansas. Or maybe they were from a nearby state, you know. I mean, it, whatever. It was in the territory of the U.S. Mm -hmm. Usually to be able to have jurisdiction, you have to have a territorial link a nationality link, you know, the commission of the crime has to maybe happen there, that sort of thing. Um, with universal jurisdiction, the idea, it's a, it's a, the idea of this principle is that essentially some crimes are so grave that the entirety of humanity has a duty to hold per those perpetrators to account. So this is an idea that really picked up steam after World War II. And the idea is that any court, any national court, whether it's German, Belgian, Dutch, whatever, should be competent to hold a 
person who has committed genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity to account. Mm. Um, so it can be kind of, it was initially seen as somewhat radical because there is this idea of sovereign immunity, right? Like state immunity, um, folks not interfering in the internal affairs of states. But we know that that's not really a fair principle I mean, that's not really a fair standard to abide by when some states are run by dictators and they're abusing their own population. I don't think it's appropriate for us to say that's just an internal affair. If a whole ethnic group is being killed in a country, for instance, or if, you know, the entire female population is being brutalized for whatever reason a dictatorship, maybe a misogynist dictatorship decides. I don't think that that's a fair thing. And so universal jurisdiction really seeks to address that and this idea that some crimes are so grave that they cannot go unpunished. And I, I mean, just to go a little bit deeper, when, um, so for people that don't know, international relations is considered anarchical. Gisu, I think we'll probably get to get into like the differences between maybe like hard law and soft law and maybe uh, like enforceability, I guess we could say. Um, but uh, I guess what I wanted to touch on was that um, states can defend themselves uh, by, you know, claiming their sovereignty. And uh, sovereignty for, again, the audience uh, just means, in my opinion, on a basic level, that a state has the ability to uh, maintain its own affairs and uh, without uh, intervention from outside actors. Would you say that's a basic definition? So, Gisu, what you're basically saying is that a claim of sovereignty uh, can't, cannot be justified on the global stage. Uh, these various types of human rights violations that are taking place. And, and so, so this universal court or jurisdiction, this is a newer entity basically that uh, address some of the limitations of states that don't participate in the International Criminal Court or ways to, I guess, uh, avoid accountability in some ways. Yeah, that's, you know, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, um, I think maybe more than a century ago, the idea that, you know, a, a state perpetrator could be held to account somewhere else um, would be a radical one. But our world is increasingly globalized. We don't live in the same world that we used to, where um, people were literally separated by oceans and where you couldn't just hop on a flight and go somewhere else. Like, we don't we don't live in that kind of world anymore, whether it comes to trade, um, the way that we engage in the online space. And so you can imagine that if we see that a certain segment of a population, for example, is being um, destroyed in another country, or if there's like widespread and systematic crimes, violent crimes being committed against a civilian population by a, by a state, um, that's not something that I think the international community, as we use that word, uh, more clearly defined, they're not going to abide by that. Now, to the extent to which they're successful, that's a completely different question. And of course, we've seen a massive failure of the international community when it comes to Syria. 
um, for a range of reasons. And, you know, we see that there are recurring um, atrocities being committed in different uh, countries, different regions where there's not a lot of recourse to justice and there's not a lot of ways to prevent it. But certainly as an ideal point, I think um, we all have a responsibility no matter what borders we're in to ensure that people are not being brutalized in other parts in other parts of the world. I see that. Well, what do you think, or do you have opinions on like what leads to these kinds of conditions or what sustains these conditions, especially in, I guess, what people in the West would consider like a, the modern era? Yeah, you know, um, it's interesting because I think a lot of times, I mean, certainly when it comes to crimes like genocide, um, I think that we see that there's clear dehumanizing language that precedes it. Um, things have changed a lot just in the past decade because of social media, because of the spread of disinfo and misinformation that really can fuel radical movements. I think radicalism is tied hand in hand with um, these kinds of abuses. I think anytime we see the rise in radical rhetoric, especially the othering of groups is when we start to run into these problems. And what is interesting for me is not only looking at who are the state actors that are responsible for things that directly befall their own civilian populations, but also looking at how other countries play a role in that. So for example, a lot of countries in the West are quite happy to issue statements condemning violence that they claim is, you know, miles away, but they bear direct responsibility for either supplying the arms that go to fuel these conflicts or providing other financial means by which these conflicts are fueled or really providing diplomatic cover or encouraging you know, one-man dictatorships over democratic movements. We've seen that time and time again. And so we're all linked in what is happening around the world. And, you know, U.S. foreign policy, for certain, has played a big role in that. Um, and I think the, the, the sort of passive approach from some European states has also been problematic. There's a lot of you know, ongoing trade relations. And uh, when money is prioritized over rights, I think we run into these problems. So um, it's not a matter, I would encourage people to not think of, you know, certain conflicts that are happening around the world or um, states where there's mass human rights violations occurring as something that somehow isn't connected to us. Like it is actually connected to the way that our governments move through the world too and what, who they support, who they don't support, what they finance, what they don't finance. It's all connected. Mm. It's so do you think that like, um, if, if you done this, um, are there some areas that you think like, uh, the U S could improve that, that would also improve, um, the type of intervention that you're doing from a legal perspective? Like, are there different, ways that people in America could just think about the kind of uh, influence that we have on conditions of the world? I mean, is it too utopic to like consider if uh, Americans realize that 
we still have the most powerful currency in the world that we power globally in a way that no other country on the planet is able to project that power that we have like institutions like uh, the IMF that are a lender and there's tons of academic study that's com extremely rigorous that talks about uh, debt uh, for, you know, states that are already struggling. And I mean, like, is there like things that could be done differently maybe in Washington just on a, like, a basic level that could help aid the kind of work that you're doing that is so important around human rights? Well, that would be an entire other podcast, honestly. <laughs> I mean, we could, go, we could go on for hours about what should be changed in terms of D.C.'s approach to foreign policy. I should know I'm kind of a D.C. outsider. So the fact that I am now running a program at a think tank in D.C. is a very new development. Um, and I don't have a background in D.C. And so it's been fascinating to kind of see what is accepted as a conventional wisdom when I don't see why it has to be. I think the U.S. military footprint is entirely too large. And we know that most violations against individuals happen in war. I mean, war is the ultimate worst outcome for civilians. Um, there's different shades of arguments on when, you know, military options are required for responsibility to protect or things like that. I'm not going to get into all of that, but reducing our military footprint footprint would be an initial like, very good place to start. Mm -hmm. Not propping up dictators just because they're U.S. allies would be a great place to start. Sure. Um, but what I think could be really concrete for this discussion, which as far as I understand is not happening, but I do hope that it happens in the future, is that the U.S., never ratified the Rome Statute, mm. which is the document for the International Criminal Court. So we're okay. not a member of the International Criminal Court. That puts us in the company of countries like Iran. Mm. Um, it's not a good company to be in. Let's put it that way. The non-ratifiers are a smaller list and they're, you know, they're not a list that we should be on. Now, I understand that you know, a lot of that reason is because of the concerns about U.S. service members being prosecuted. Again, that goes back to our large military footprint. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the U.S. is quite capable of um, holding those individuals to account themselves in our military courts. But then we saw decisions like during the Trump administration to um, let a Navy SEAL who had been convicted of war crimes by our courts go. Well, you know, that's not going to give us encouragement around the idea that the U.S. is capable of handling when its own armed service members commit war crimes. It's just not going to help. Um, I think sometimes the U.S. is in a place where they're more supportive of the efforts of the International Criminal Court. So behind the scenes, they'll help. I mean, notably during the, during the George W. Bush administration, they actually worked a lot behind the scenes to um, on the Sudan file and to work to get an indictment against Omar al-Bashir, who was formerly the head of Sudan. Um, but during the Trump administration, there were outright visceral, super hostile attacks on the court. And that doesn't actually serve the interests of international justice. And it looks like 
then the U.S. is not in a position to be taking any leadership role when it comes to justice, human rights, democracy, and the rest. So it's not a good place to be in. And I think that they would um, do, the U.S. government would do well to try to be more supportive of those efforts and really reconsider its position on not ratifying the Rome Statute. Mm. So in this um, somewhat post-Trump era, um, you know, because I'm, you know, I think you said your career spans at least a decade. In this post-Trump era, do you feel like the way that people interact with you from different parts of the world has shifted? Or do your peers talk about, like, uh, if perceptions of abroad are different now than maybe in 2010? You know, just about the United States in general? Yeah, so... I, when I first went to The Hague, it was during the George W. Bush administration. And I think the view of America was at an all-time low. Um, I think I've often gotten a pass on the America question because I'm Iranian-American. My name doesn't read as what I think for, you know, historically at least was considered to be American. My name isn't like Susan Smith or something like this. So, you know, obviously we know that's changing and those views are evolving, but, you know, what's what I think most people's conventional wisdom is, including abroad, about what an American looks like or what their name sounds like. Um, so while I sound very American, like there's no, you know, debating once you hear my slight valley girl twang, um, you know, I got a pass a lot of times. So I think that's for sure. And so people opened up to me pretty um, extensively about what they thought and how they viewed the U.S. Um, I think the fact that the two countries that I hold citizenship in, you know, the two governments have been hostile towards each other since I was born um, is pretty significant. It definitely showed me that, you know, people are not their governments, even less so in a dictatorship, but that's also true of um, even representative democracies. Our government is not us, you know, always we elect them, but we don't always have the power. And depending on who's elected, we might not agree with the outcome, you know, but it showed me that people around the world have a lot more in common sure. than we think. And that a lot of times problems are um, created by those with the power and money. And a lot of times financial motives are at root you know, um, so in terms of, you know, what the reception was, I think definitely to a scene when morale on the U.S. was at an all time low. Um, I think when I was also in The Hague when Obama got elected. And so there was a definite shift, I think, because of the language he was using. The interesting thing is sometimes the policies don't differ that much, you know, so I think a lot. I mean, Obama was a drone king. Yeah. He was a deportation king. But, you know, um, yeah. I guess he delivered it with nicer language. And also, I mean, certainly he didn't institute some of the more like extremely um, problematic policies of the war on terror and all that. But sure. a lot of it was continued under his administration. So I think a lot has to do with rhetoric, packaging, um, and a lot of the country, a lot of people from countries that might be critical of the U.S., you know, also have incredible blood on their hands, either through being passive actors and things or through what they surreptitiously support. So nobody is clean. Mm -hmm. That's the way I view it. I don't view people as 
um, being defined by what borders they're in, um, that to me doesn't mean anything. And it means less and less, uh, I think, with how we're all connected online and the degree to which we can move through borders and cultures and everything. It just means less and less, I think. Um, so yeah, I guess I always got a pass, but I don't know how it would go for somebody who, you know, is showing up in international forums and it's kind of like super maybe bullish on US foreign policy and thinks everything is great. I don't know what kind of reception they would get because yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how I would feel about them either. So Literally. Um, well, yeah. So I think what um, got me so interested in, th there's two things. One will make you laugh, the other I grew up. So there's two things that got me interested in uh, politics in the Middle East. One is, and uh, even two days ago, people assume that I'm from North Africa or the Middle East. Doesn't matter what part of the world I'm in. So I'm either East Asian, North African, or Middle Eastern. So I get that all the time. Uh, so I'm like, well, I'm, maybe I should forgot what's going on in the region since people ascribe it to me. Uh, and then uh, the second thing is when I was 10, I moved to Colorado Springs, which is a military town. And it has five military bases, including NORAD. And, uh, you know, it used to be a facility where they would maintain global airspace. It's in the mountain. You can uh, go to this golf course at this uh, five-star hotel called the Broadmoor. You're right at the base of Cheyenne Mountain. So this is the town I grew up in. And so a lot of it's like 35% military and duty that doesn't include civilian contractors. So I grew up around people that Clarence because they built like virtual uh, war simulators. And they would sell those systems to other countries. Or they were legitimate... Uh, and they had offices in L.A., Washington, and Colorado Springs, and they would take special forces guys that had served for 20 years and convert them to these other types of projects that we were doing. In the early 2000s, when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school, and so the politics uh, and the way that uh, the world was discussed in uh, it was really oppressive in a lot of ways intellectually because the community is to this day still so pro-war because you have to think the town was founded by a war general named William Palmer, which is also a high school that I went to. He built the whole city and had really incredible ties to Washington, obviously. And so that set off this kind of trajectory where the Air Force Academy uh, Fort Carson and a number of other bases and people. Some of my friends are still um, active duty, uh, but but that perspective uh, shaped my perspective in a way where I, as I started to become aware of it in my early twenties, I was really angry about it. To be honest, uh, I remember when uh, the U.S. declared war on uh, Iraq. On my birthday, I think it was like October 7th, 01. I'm sure we can look that up. And I remember in uh, Colorado Springs, everyone was cheering. Like that, like that was... I didn't realize that uh, the president uh, 
got no formal approval anywhere, not even from the UN Security Council. I didn't know how all of these things were set up. I just knew that uh, my neighbors were making, you know, tens of uh, millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars off of the war machine. So it actually, over the years, even down the street, I can see Ball Aerospace headquarters in Colorado, but it actually gave me this, like, uh, distaste for the air defense industry. And, and my audience knows that I'm pretty outspoken. I develops, I'll become somewhat of a corporate activist, even though it's not as important as the work that you're doing in human rights. There are things about corporations. So, so then this kind of led me on this path to understand more about uh, international political economy and, and, you know, the ways that not just government, but corporations interact around the globe and how that influences uh, politics and policy and so forth. But uh, I think a lot of people hear the word authoritarianism and they, they trivialize the meaning of it. Do you have like a, a working definition or like, like what an authoritarian regime is just on a basic level? Yeah, I mean, layperson definition, not like the formal definitions that you could find online, but layperson definition is when, in my view, is when there's no freedom of speech, there's no freedom of assembly, association, there's a one-party or no-party system, and there's, you know, theocratic, oligarchic, like whatever you want to say, but like there's like usually one-man rule or one group of crony rule. Mm -hmm. um, it could be a man or a woman just tends to usually be men somehow. Um, I'm sure that will evolve as equality evolves. We'll see more women dictators rise to the fore. Um, it's just a matter of access, honestly, I think. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's how I would define it. It's when you feel like you cannot say anything in a state that expresses a different kind of opinion without worrying about a repercussion. So it from goes from government. people who are, yeah, from the government. So it goes from like people who are, you know, not even activists who are just maybe like speaking their mind on social media. Like if you live in an authoritarian state, probably a lot of your social media apps are blocked. Mm -hmm. Probably there's websites you can't visit online because the government has decided that you're not allowed to and there's strong censorship. Like there's somebody who actually takes an active role in trying to challenge that state, then you're going to be put in jail, tortured, killed, convicted on trumped up charges, you know, mm. all of that kind of thing disappeared. Um, mm. That's how I view authoritarianism. And something that you said, by the way, I just wanted to point, uh, touch on is you said you might, you know, you're interested in corporate actors. That's a huge part of human rights litigation. So going oh. after corporate actors who are financing war crimes, for instance, um, or who are polluting the planet or who are doing any number of things is actually a huge part of the work. Because if you don't stem off the money stream, I mean, that's so often the root cause of why things are happening. It's, sure. it's folks that have a profit motive and who figure if they don't do it, somebody else will do it anyway. That's how they justify it. That's how they mm -hmm. justify sales of weapons and all that. So um, that work is incredibly important, actually. Okay, that's interesting. I never, I never, I've obviously thought about um, climate, but I'm seeing more clearly what you're saying in certain ways. So, 
to be for another recording. Uh, okay, so just to kind of tie the um, so these authoritarian re regimes um, and and kind of the conditions that you're describing. Uh, a lot of my listeners are in the West, so they uh, I think a lot of Western people take this uh, for granted. But we're we're talking like uh, what's a non-brash way to say this? Like if I'm on social media or if I'm I don't know public forum or interacting with the government, dissent is in these authoritarian areas. Like dissent is a very dangerous act. Is that is that like a think about it like. If you're dissenting with uh, the government or uh, that kind of institution, you may be putting your life or your family's life at risk, even if you're arguable. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, when we think about states that are democracies versus authoritarian states, um, it, it's about degrees, right? So I see that, especially these days, ever since, you know, the start of the pandemic or whatever we're calling it at this point. Um, I see a lot of people in the U.S., for instance, really throw around terms very loosely about how feeling they're living under an authoritarian state or mm -hmm. we're living in a Nazi era time because of vaccine mandates. I mean, it's that's just very, very extreme. And it shows yeah. to me that they haven't actually lived under dictatorship. So they are not really clear on what what it you know what that actually means um in the u.s it's certainly true that especially along racial lines segments of the population that are going to be treated in ways that are different than the rest of the population so i want to put i mean that's i want to acknowledge that that's a very serious thing and i i actually saw um after you know there was such an outcry about um, police brutality, like racialized police brutality and all that, and uh, criminal justice reform, that we really saw that those conversations were also happening internationally and that, you know, the UN was making statements. And to be honest, I found that to be appropriate because now we're seeing, you know, cases where it's being dealt with and all that. But for so long, a lot of that had gone ignored. Either there wasn't video footage of what was happening or there wasn't enough of an outcry, but certainly justice wasn't being delivered and preventative measures weren't being taken. And that's and when a country is not dealing with it, it's appropriate then for international mechanisms to say to issue statements and say what's going on, because for all the reasons that I said before, that applies to other states. That also applies here if we're not doing sure. something right. But um, but the truth of the matter is I look at what, you know, how I would be treated in Iran versus how I would be treated here. Like the two countries that I have nationality in, right, that I hold passports in. In Iran, I'd have to cover my head because there's mandatory hijab laws. It doesn't matter that in some parts of Tehran, I could maybe get away with just like a loose scarf. It's the principle of the matter. I'm not treated the same under the law as a woman. I am discriminated against in matters of inheritance, in matters of marriage, divorce, child custody. I'm discriminated in all those ways in Iran. My testimony at trial is worth half that of a man. For me, one of the biggest reasons that I'm animated about these issues and this comparison is 
because of gender and because of the fact that I'm a woman. So I am actually in the oppressed group if I was in Iran. In the US, um, I myself am not Muslim, I'm not religious. I don't really, um, I don't really ascribe to that. But I, I'm from a family that's Muslim or at least culturally Muslim. There might be some issues that I would have faced if I was more visibly Muslim or, you know, I hate even using that because to be a Muslim, you don't have to be, you don't have to cover, but you know what I mean? If I presented in a way, if my name was a certain thing that, that sure. people could know, then maybe I would encounter a different treatment. So I can't speak to that, but as it is, I mean, I can flow through this society without needing to worry that my different political opinion will result in me being jailed, tortured, or physically harmed. That's not a high risk for me versus if I lived elsewhere um, and express those same opinions. If I want to talk about gender equality in Iran and took to the streets and removed my hijab, I'd be facing jail time. Um, I'm not presented with those choices here because it's not a thing. Um, so for, to me, that's just like the very basic difference. It's definitely a rudimentary way of putting it. There's a lot more complexities to that. And as I said, there are other groups in the US that certainly don't experience life in the same way that I do. But for the most part, we're talking about these kinds of differences where a group like women in Iran are the majority. I mean, they they outnumber men and yet they're officially discriminated under the legal framework there. These are the kinds of extremes I'm speaking about. And we need to address those worldwide. People shouldn't feel that this is cultural relativism or, you know, that somehow this is okay. And they should really listen to the demands of people in the countries, the activists, the remaining members of civil society who are saying like, no, this is not okay. And we want this to change. Why did those in power uh, in like, say Iran, for example, why did they have a need to institutions? Like, like, I think just, again, for people in my, that aren't familiar with Iran, it's still a legitimate government. In some ways, you could still consider it a regional hegemon. It's still some services to the people. It's not, we're not talking about um, the Republic of Congo, right? So it's still, it's still um, like on the ground in many ways, Iran is a, uh, a, a successful country, if you will, uh, economically, right? regionally. So what, why, why does a state that has the power to like make great positive change in the region, like why do the people in power not see benefits to that? Well, I think, in, I mean, every country is different and we could go, probably go through all the countries in the Middle East and North Africa and point out their, you know, governance models. But mm -hmm. in Iran, it's a theocracy. So because the animating ideology is Islam and because they uphold to a very strict version of that and they have adopted Sharia law as, which is Islamic law as the law of the country, that's why you have these extremes that are enforced legally. Um, it's true that Iran is a functional state. I mean, it's not a failed state. It's not like, you know, we're not talking about a failed state, but some of their choices have definitely been poor ones because aside from the human rights violations, the atrocity crimes and all the reasons that I think that they should not be governing the country. I think we need democratic representative leadership in the country and most activists in the country agree with that. Um, but aside from that, there's support for terrorism 
mm. in the region is has you know whether people agree with this or not has landed them in the bad books of the US and that has consequences because the US currently holds a lot of financial power and so there's like real questions around you know how smart of a decision is that even if you're somebody who is an ardent anti-imperialist and you think oh you know Iran is so great because it's a thorn in the side of the US completely of course disregarding the fact that Iran is brutalized the Iranian state brutalizes its own people and so they're nothing to be excited about they're not like champions of anything really um but even if you're excited about this anti-imperialist kind of but how is that sensible how sure. is it sensible maybe you you think the entire global financial system should change well that's great but we're not there um cryptocurrency is currently not like the main form of money exchange you know so these things are going to matter and if you're on the bad books then you're going to be cut off from the financial system and it's really doing a disservice to the people um so i think the way that i always view so like economic sanctions for instance i'm not a proponent of broad based economic sanctions because i don't think they actually tar- surgically target who should be targeted and who should be held accountable for violations and often low burn impact on the people who end up really suffering so i don't see that as a really great model but um even if you were to be you know even if you were looking at the situation and thought well um you know i'm against i'm against economic sanctions this and that the 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 state that i think should really be interrogated on its policies is actually the islamic republic because they know what's going to happen they're saying you know death to america this and that they're going to land on these lists and so the question is why do you think like as a smaller power that you're going to i think this goes back to international relations and the things that you know that you study and know about but when it comes to this kind of system like why would you think that's a good choice your ideology is you know all encompassing and kind of trumping what the best interests of your people are. Mm-hmm. So that's my my main qualm with them is around their commission of human rights violations and atrocity crimes. If they didn't do that against their own people, then we would be having a different discussion. But they're also really I mean they're not they're not providing the services that they need to provide to their people. All my contacts in Iran and family are suffering from massive inflation. as a result of sanctions one could blame the US for that for sure but we know the realities of the system so why do we think anything would be different you know um this is a difficult line of argument and there's a lot of you know different ways we could discuss it but i just find this so unconscionable that the people in that country have not even voted for this current leadership and that leadership is making decisions based on ideology that impacts everybody's life. Mm. And in in some ways the ideology is completely like what western liberal values and things that we've seen actually be a huge benefit um that may have been lost earlier in our discussion because obviously we got to be critical of this. but at the same time i think like the way that what what informs the kind of work you do is still built off of the back of uh, liberal values 
Um, and so even though we have a long way to go in the U.S. in certain areas, uh, we, we fall paths. Um, and I would argue with this with anybody uh, anywhere in the globe, but but we far surpass um, most other parts of the world in, in perceptions, of, in my opinion, because uh, like we have this deep national kind of belief in individualism. Uh, so at least in perception of agency, we we far surpass most. And then. On the worst day, we do have a legitimate um, uh, legal system that's not perfect, but but there are measures that we can take, and the laws define the limits of the authority of the state, which is very different than other parts of the world constitution, or don't think in a way where these documents limit the state's authority to intervene in our personal affairs. So I, I do think that in the United States, there are still benefits to that. And um, I do think that uh, you and your peer group um, are one of the most uh, influential people in the world, however we look at it, coming out of the United States, um, working on human rights. So DC, I, we're like running out of time. Uh, but but it's been really amazing to talk to you, and I hope that uh, we can do a part two. But do you have any like um, last uh, comments on your mind? And then could could you share with my audience like where to find you, or if there's like any upcoming projects that you're working on that are important to you? Yeah. So um, I'll just close out with this values question because I think it's one that comes up a lot, and it's really interesting and. What I would argue is that the Islamic Republic of Iran's values are not even in step with the young generation in the country that has been, you know, Iran has an incredible rate of Internet penetration. So they were one of the early adopters of the Internet um, explosion in the blogosphere. Um, the natural bent is to encourage discussion and debate. And like that's a natural bent of that society. And even the revolution, when it happened in 79, the whole point was to get rid of a monarch. Um, I mean, for better or for worse, uh, look where we ended up, but to get rid of a monarch. And at the time it was a very, it was not an Islamist revolution. Actually, most of the people involved were leftists. Um, there were Marxists. It was a populist movement that kind of got hijacked in the end by the Islamists. And so the vibrancy of the debate was very intense. There was lots of different views. And so that kind of pluralism has always existed. But sadly, you know, it got stamped out. Um, but it doesn't reflect how the people are. And we also see something that happened in Saudi Arabia, for instance. I mean, Wahhabism became the dominant religious ideology because of the House of Saud. But prior to that, there was vibrancy even in the in the debates among different Islamic schools of thought. So I think these are not, to me, these are not only Western values, they're just values. We also see it in like old documents um, from like China, fantastic, great empire, you know? It's just the way that it's then been interpreted into state rule. And so I feel like that's a process, but we can rely on the people to naturally gravitate towards you know, wanting to be able to have some degree of autonomy. Of course, some societies are more collective in nature. You know, they have a different maybe approach. I, I'm thinking of uh, maybe not in Iran necessarily, but, you know, um, 
certainly we see that dynamic in East Asia and so on. But um, I think these are not only Western values. And so that's what I often like to remind folks, because at the UN in particular, in the United Nations, whenever there are states that are, you know, where representatives are kind of claiming that, um, you know, these are all Western values, they've been imposed, but it's like, no, we can actually trace these values to your own, you know, ancient writings and schools of thought and the way that people dialogue. So um, I am very optimistic for what that means for the future. Um, and in terms of where, you know, folks can find me, I'm at Gisunia, so G-I-S-S-O-U-N-I-A on Twitter, Instagram, I don't really use Facebook, but I'm on Twitter and Instagram. So you can find me there and just keep up with what I'm up to, especially on Twitter. I'll post if I'm, you know, going to be in an event or stuff like that. So you can keep, catch me there. Cool. Well, this has been fascinating. And I, um, I hope that we'll get to do a part two. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to, for my people to take a listen to what we're talking about. And, and again, Gisu, I'm not always going to be uh, most rigorous academic, but I am trying to explore ideas like things that you're working on and then also um, see if I break them down in ways that are, uh, you know, available to a broader group. That's all. So thank you so much. Because human rights work is all about the people, actually. So if people are not understanding what I'm saying, then I'm not really doing my job right. So I love what you're doing. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right.